sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, hoping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, it's our monthly medical roundtable. Then our experts answer your questions. But first, Buckle up for a whirlwind journey through January's health headlines that are as diverse as your daily vitamin intake. I'm your guide, and let's dive into the month that gave us more twists and turns than a yoga class in a tornado. First on our radar, the relentless saga of COVID-19 and respiratory diseases, like the sequel we never asked for. It's the blockbuster we desperately want to end, but the virus insists on an extended director's cut. Popcorn, anyone? Hold on to your inhalers, folks. We're sniffing around investigations into the mysterious world of high drug prices with a focus on those precious inhalers. Because apparently breathing in the 21st century requires a VIP pass. Seriously, I'm not kidding here. In a plot twist that's straight out of a medical drama, we've got updates on the rule aiming to improve prior authorizations for therapies and tests. Will it be the hero or the underdog? The suspense is killing us, or maybe that's just the inhaler bill. Health news from our home state of Florida. The FDA has given the Sunshine State the green light to import drugs from Canada. Bravo, Florida. Ever wondered if sound waves could be your brain's DJ? Well, a small study suggests that focused sound waves may help deliver Alzheimer's drugs directly to the brain. Talk about a rock concert for your neurons. And now, for a mind-bending finale, the FDA is contemplating psychedelics for psychiatric conditions. The brain's new frontier awaits. Joining us today to add perspective and delve into these headlines for our monthly medical roundtable show are our medical powerhouse team. Up first, Dr. Tina Arden. She is a family medicine physician at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. Dr. Arden, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back today. It's great to have you back, Tina. Uh, Dr. Daniel Correa, he's been here several times. He's a practicing neurologist with a focus in epilepsy at Montefiore Medical Center in Bronx, New York. He's also co-host of the American Academy of Neurology's Brain and Life podcast. Dr. Correa, welcome back. It's great to be back. That was quite a list of discussion topics. <laughs> we're we're going to hit them all there, uh, Daniel. So we're excited to have you join us for, for us. And then last but not least, Dr. Jennifer Coward. She is a practicing hospitalist physician here in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Coward, welcome back as well. Thanks for having me back, Joe. It's great to have you. Let's start off with you, Dr. Correa, and we're going to talk uh, first, about prior authorizations. Uh, let me start out with uh, a nice piece that showed up in uh, the Washington Post. They wrote, there's the Idaho doctor whose infant daughter developed a brain tumor. A woman in Southern California who waited months for an MRI before dying in the hospital and a North Carolina patient who has a trigeminal neuralgia condition so painful 
It's often called the suicide disease. What do they have in common? Apart from a nightmare diagnosis, their insurance companies at some point denied doctor-recommended care through a process called prior authorization. This is a set of rules unique to every health insurance plan requiring pre-approval for some tests, procedures, and prescriptions. In 2021, Medicare Advantage insurers processed an average of 1.5 prior authorization requests for every enrolled patients. Now, legislation to regulate prior authorization for Advantage patients, that's Medicare Advantage patients, has strong support from lawmakers and has recently been weighed in upon uh, by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that's looking to help millions more that are enrolled in both Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, or Obamacare marketplace policy. If they pass the CMS rule, this would require some insurers to automate their prior authorization processes, respond to expedited requests within 72 hours, and standard requests within seven calendar days, and provide more information when they issue denials. Daniel, I know I mentioned a description of prior authorization. Can you describe what is this and why is this an issue? Well, simply for most people, it's an incredibly frustrating thing that we all deal with, both sets, community members, patients, uh, family members, and doctors. But basically, it's a pre-approval for a person from a person's health insurance company that they will pay for a medication or a particular procedure. In that process, it's, the idea is it's used to manage the expensive costs of the growing healthcare costs within our system. Um, you know, but uh, you know, this is inserting another person into the discussion and relationship between an individual, their family, and their healthcare providers that it really isn't part of that decision-making in the traditional concept that we'd ha we would have of really sharing the information about your condition, talking to your doctor about it, and picking about what's next in the diagnosis or in the treatment. How big a deal is this for you and your patients uh, as a physician? <laughs> I think this is a major part of our modern U.S. healthcare system's life and day for, for doctors, you know, for you, me, and our, all of our colleagues. Even patients who are in the hospital sometimes, the next step of what needs to get done or the rehab care, rehabilitation care for them going home or the needs that they'll have when they get home, sometimes that, those aspects might still need a pre-approval. Um, or a prior authorization. So this is a major thing that affects healthcare at every stage. Uh, it's one of the ways where, you know, our colleagues, our clinic staff, join a person and their family in advocating for their needs. Unfortunately, it's also all extra time. It's frustrating for people and their families because they're trying to work with their insurance companies to get what they need. And it, you know, that's not part of their workday. And it's technically not really even part of the workday that we consider in our time for doctors and for our staff. So we're all juggling to balance and find the time to get our community members and our family members and patients the care that they need. I think there's been recent movement on this rule. Uh, and I'm wondering, is there any advice uh, that I'm sure patients who have been uh, very much stopped by prior auth uh, would want to do something to try to make this move it along? Any suggestions or advice for them? Well, I think the first part is to go back to the fact, you know, it's great that we have electronic medical records, but despite the promises, they're not all linked. Um, so not all of us can see all the different things that you have been given or have, have in the part of your workup. And so sometimes things can get repeated by that way or might need to be because we can't get things before. So as much as you can, keeping the records of your results um, and for things like medications, keeping your own record of the medicines you've taken and when, if a medicine was stopped, was it because of a side effect and what it was or if it didn't work? 
keeping some record on that was you're moving back and forth between doctors can help a lot your discussion with your doctor about what's next, about the medicines you need. And providing some of that information to your doctor helps arm them for that discussion with the insurance companies. It's all stuff that ideally would be there in your medical record, but if it wasn't in the clinics and the hospitals affiliated with that doctor's medical record, they may not have all the information they need when they're on the phone trying to go through that discussion and rationalize with the insurance company why the next medicine that they're suggesting it needs to be the one for you. Similarly, things like procedures or MRIs, magnetic resonance imaging, a type of, a type of radiologic image of your body, um, things like that are often things that need prior approval. And so having a little bit of more your own record on the things that you've had done when and where, so either your doctor could get those results or have a clear explanation for the insurance companies on how to advocate for you of why you need the next step for comparison or for new information. One more question, Dr. Cray, on this topic. Um, do you think that the rule that's proposed, which is basically saying 72 hours for uh, an approval uh, for a prior authorization to be done electronically. Will that, do you think that'll move the needle a lot or just a little? I think it'll help some. Uh, it's frustrating sometimes when we're just, you know, we these requests or the information that we submit as doctors or, or for patients just goes out into the ether. We have no way of tracking it. And we're just, you know, our, our social workers or the care coordination team in the hospital is just waiting to hear back. And they don't know if it's going to be a day or five days uh, to get someone to their rehabilitation facility. 72 hours still feels like a long time. And unfortunately, this rule doesn't have some sort of way of prioritizing things that are urgent healthcare needs. Um, and if, you know, if you're an outpatient and you're not, you don't need something immediately, maybe, you know, maybe two days or three days is not so, so difficult of a wait time for you. But for some things, I still feel like even that time is too short. Like, I mean, your doctor's expected to make that decision there with you and in the clinic or at the bedside. And you're, and you're expecting information about that treatment or those procedures the next day or even the same day. And so I feel like insurance companies should have the same level of requirement to get back and participate. If they're going to be participating in the decision-making in this way financially, they should be responsible for a turnaround time, same similarly that we expect from other healthcare providers. Let's move to uh, a topic that's also related in the financial realm. And I'm going to point this to you, Dr. Cower, and this has to do with uh, our seemingly implacable problems with high drug prices. And yet the FDA approves Florida's request to import Canadian drugs. Let me start off with part one. Recently, Senator Bernie Sanders of the chair of the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee opened an investigation to the high price of inhalers. In particular, he noted that companies such as Teva charges $286 for an inhaler in the United States that sold for $9 in Germany or that AstraZeneca charges $645 for an inhaler sold for $49 in Britain. Four companies targeted by Sanders include AstraZeneca, Boringer, Ingelheim, GlaxoSmithKline, and Teva Pharmaceuticals, and they collectively report billions of dollars in annual revenue on the products, which are often purchased monthly. Meanwhile, here in Florida, in order to try to get over those high prices, the FDA greenlit Florida's request to become the first state in the nation to directly import prescription drugs from Canada at a lower cost. The approval marks a major shift in U.S. drug policy, delivers a blow to the pharmaceutical industry, which is signaling it wants to fight this decision. A closer look, Florida said it would initially import prescription drugs that treat HIV, mental illness, and prostate cancer, which would be available to patients at state-run facilities and ultimately Medicaid members. Uh, first question to you, Dr. Cowart. Um, do you hear, I know that you're in the hospital primarily, but do you hear a lot about inhaler prices? Oh, there is so much to unpack here. Uh, <laughs> off, yes, I take care of patients in the hospital with uh, maybe an asthma exacerbation or a COPD exacerbation. They come in short of breath 
And at the time of discharge, you know, we put them either back on their inhalers or we adjust their inhalers and we add new inhalers. Um, the good news is there's a lot more inhalers and a lot more treatments available than there were, you know, even five or 10 years ago. The bad news is that most of these appear to be brand name uh, yeah. on patent drugs. Um, so very few generics available in this market. So um, we do hear from a lot of our patients that they are having trouble affording their inhalers or they got a prescription for one and they could never fill it because it was too expensive. Um, just tooling around on a website I use called GoodRx, yeah. G-O-O-D-R-X. Um, just looking at the prices of some of these inhalers. The cheapest I found for Teotropium generic was $160 without insurance. Um, some of them like one called Anoro, uh, which is a brand name one, um, often used again for COPD. This one is $493 is the best price without insurance. Um, so it's a big problem in this uh, space. And these patients who need these inhalers, they need them once or twice a day, every single day. If they come off of their medicine, they can end up back in the hospital. So this is a big problem. Um, what I counsel my patients on yeah. is, uh, and what we try to do is we'll talk to the pulmonary team or whoever's prescribing this and say, okay, uh, what are the acceptable alternatives? What if my patient cannot get this brand name inhaler you're recommending, what are the acceptable alternatives? Thankfully, there's often several in the space um, that may have therapeutic uh, interchangeability. They may work functionally about the same if I can find one that the patient can afford. Second, if the patient has insurance, um, then we go and check their insurance and see if there's a particular inhaler that would work for their patient and is on formulary with them. So we try to see what is the least expensive option that will work for that patient. If they have insurance, we can often find one that they can afford. Maybe, maybe not, but we do our best. If they don't have insurance or even with insurance benefits, their inhalers are too expensive, then we start looking at uh, drug rebate programs from the manufacturer. Is there something we can sign the patient up for? Um, it, it, can we get them a coupon price or a cash pay price against something like GoodRx? We'll look at different pharmacies to see if, uh, you know, one pharmacy has it cheaper than another. This is a lot of legwork. Uh, this is a yeah. lot of time spent just trying to make sure our patients can get their medicine. And I'm really happy to see that the Senate is starting to pay attention to these inhalers because this has been a problem for a long time. Now, I want to unpack a little bit the importation of drugs from Canada. Yeah, please. Um, yeah. So I think it's very interesting. Uh, generally speaking, I'm all for things to make drugs more accessible to patients who need them and overcoming the very high prices we have in the U.S. Um, that said, I don't know if this is going to be a long-term viable solution. Mm -hmm. And here's why. The Canadian government gets those low prices because they negotiate with the manufacturers for how many, you know, let's say inhaler X. Right. Uh, Canada says we need 100,000 inhaler Xs for this many patients for the year. What price can you give us? And then they negotiate that price. Florida and other states have asked for a long time to be able to import those drugs from Canada. They're essentially taking advantage of the fact that the Canadian government has negotiated that price Got down. It. Got it. And so my worry is that it won't take the Canadian government very long to uh, start cracking down on that exportation process because that's going to start to, especially you start talking large scale, that's going to start to impact the availability of those drugs in their countries. Um, so it may work in the short term and it may provide some benefit for some patients. Again, I'm all for trying to lower the cost of drugs. But in the long run, another option that we've talked about on this show before is uh, Medicare has started in 2023 directly negotiating right. some right. drug prices. And so they have a list of the top 10 that they started with. Um, unfortunately, no inhalers are on that top mm -mm. 10 yet. Uh, they were focusing on a different group of medications. Um, so inhalers are not yet going to see any relief from Medicare drug price negotiation. Um, nor were inhalers part of that Florida importation package, at least initially. So anything we can do to help our patients 
get their their medicine, not get sick and come to the hospital, uh, not go bankrupt trying to to keep their health safe. I'm, I'm all for. I'm interested to see where we go in 2024 with these importation uh, projects and with Medicare starting to negotiate more prices. Absolutely. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servaneff. You're just joining us. It's our monthly medical roundtable. And we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tag me on X at jservan. Dr. Arden, we're going to go to a different topic, and I'm going to point this to you. One of the things that we have seen is a huge rise in respiratory illnesses. Yet, uh, Florida Surgeon General is avoid asking and advising to avoid all mRNA vaccines. The background is that respiratory illness activity is rapidly increasing across the United States, yet vaccine rates for COVID-19, influenza, and RSV, or respiratory syncovirus, remain low. JN1 variant is the one that continues to increase. That's the new COVID-19 variant, and it's the one that's most widely circulating at the time. Based on current data available, vaccine tests and treatments work against JN1, but millions of people may get sick in the next month or two, and low vaccine rates mean more people get more severe disease. So getting vaccinated now can help prevent hospitalizations and save lives. However, and meanwhile, here in Florida, earlier in the month, Florida Surgeon General Joseph Latipo doubled down on his assertion that mRNA vaccines should be avoided. So first question for you, Dr. Arden, are you seeing an uptick in respiratory illnesses in general? Oh, absolutely. So um, the last uh, several weeks have been quite busy for us, both in the outpatient setting, which is where I practice in, in the clinic setting, as well as in the hospital setting. And I, I think we're, we're going to be in this for a little bit longer because of some of the things that we've, you've mentioned already. Um, low uptake of our vaccines that we have available to our community and our patients, um, perhaps not testing as much as patients used to do um, earlier on in the COVID to understand what they're dealing with and perhaps isolate, stay home from work, stay home from school. So that perpetuates these infections as well. Um, most people are no longer masking routinely, and that was uh, a very helpful tool to be able to prevent transmission in the community. So uh, we, we've definitely had our work cut out for us, and I think we're going to be here for a little bit longer, unfortunately. On the second part has to do with the advice that we get from a uh, Florida Surgeon General, which is completely contra the national advice from the CDC and other groups. So I'm just going to ask you, what advice should our listeners follow when it comes to these vaccines? I really appreciate this question. And this is a conversation that I, I actually have um, at least once a day, if not multiple times a day with my patients. I think I've had a version of this discussion about three times this morning already. Wow. Um, and so I'm very comfortable discussing this because it's important to me as a primary care physician, as well as a patient, my own patient being my own patient myself and for my family and for my community. And so what I tell patients is that vaccines, the reason to take your vaccines to um, recommend vaccines. There's a lot of reasons behind that. First of all, I, I get my vaccines for my own self because I want to protect myself from these diseases. That's very important to me. And I know that there is an option out there that's safe and effective to do so. Um, but by also vaccinating myself, I'm protecting those around me. I'm protecting my family members at home and my children. I'm protecting the patients around me and I'm protecting my community by, by um, doing that as well. So that's one way to maybe think about the importance of vaccines. I think, unfortunately, there is just a lot of misinformation and a lot of misunderstanding around all the different vaccines that are available, including the potential side effects and the potential risks. So I really encourage listeners here today, and my patients know this as well, to just ask those specific questions to your primary care team so we can help you make the best decision on the right information. I also think another perspective that can be really helpful is to not just think about maybe the risk of the vaccine itself. You know, should I get a COVID-19 vaccine or not? Or should I take this new RS vaccine or not? Um, here's, here's pros for doing it, here's pros for not doing it. But maybe really compare the vaccine against the infection itself. So I'll use COVID-19 as an example. 
Um, to me, uh, the risk of actually getting COVID-19 infection uh, is much more significant and much more worrisome um, than the risk or side effects of a COVID-19 vaccine, which could include a couple of days of fever, muscle ache, uh, a day or two feeling a bit down in the dumps, and then I'm, I'm back to work and back to my home life. That's that's a comparison that makes sense to me where I say I'd rather um, potentially have some mild side effects and get the actual disease. The actual disease for COVID-19 has a lot of significant consequences. Um, you could be admitted and have trouble with um, long-term respiratory distress and dysfunction. Yeah, some patients end up on oxygen for a period of time. Um, some patients struggle with other complications like a pulmonary embolism or stroke. Um, those are significant risks of the infection itself. So again, comparing the two that way sometimes is helpful for patients um, to make a good decision to proceed with a vaccination. So I really encourage everyone um, to vaccinate for not only their personal safety and health, but those around them. Um, and then we can hopefully make a dent in this respiratory season that we're facing right now. I appreciate that. And we're going to switch to yet another topic, a very different topic, and that has to do with focused ultrasound. Uh, Dr. Koran, the first study of its kind in humans, researchers have discovered that it's safe to use sound waves fired into specific areas of the brain to open a protective barrier and clear the way for Alzheimer's medications. The new study reported in the New England Journal of Medicine involved just three patients, three, but it raises hope about the long-term potential of the treatment strategy known as focused ultrasound. Dr. Crayer, what is focused ultrasound? Well, I think we should dial back a little bit. They're not fired into the brain. <laughs> you know, so focused ultrasound is, is targeted pulses of sonic waves um, or what many of us might think of as something like sound waves. It's non-invasive. It's a therapeutic technology using ultrasound. So, you know, people might be aware of ultrasound used to see a baby in a mother's stomach. Um, ultrasound might be used to take a look at some of your different organs on the inside of your body. So there's a specialized technology of that where it can be used to penetrate past your skull without any surgery, without cutting anything, to go into areas of the brain. And it's also used in other other parts of the body. So this is the technology that's being used. It's trying to help delivery of a medication in a way that's not invasive, not doesn't require a surgery or an implantation of anything. Is This is surprising in one element. Three patients makes it into literally the most prestigious medical journal. Is this study such a huge deal? You know, what's very interesting about this study is, and, you know, some of our listeners may not be aware of, your body does a lot of effort to protect the brain from other things that could be in the rest of your body that could be toxic to your brain. Infections, different chemicals, different byproducts of the metabolism in your body. Your body's, your brain is kind of cordoned off and, and protected from a lot of those things. That means also that it prevents lots of different other types of medications and molecules from being able to reach the brain for certain types of treatments. What's revolutionary is demonstrating that you can use this procedure in a safe way to temporarily kind of soften the windows or open the windows to the brain for treatments. Um, you know, this has been conceptually approached also in chemotherapy and other types of treatments of tumors, but that's really where they're, you know, they're delivering and treating something directly in the brain. Um, this is now applying the idea of giving you something systemically, um, and particularly it opens the door for some other treatments that wouldn't necessarily be traditionally accessible scientifically to the brain. Understood. On that theme of brain and opening the brain, I'm going to pivot to another topic, uh, Dr. Correa, so I'm going to hold you on this one, which is psychedelics. Um, boy, this gets a lot of discussion and a lot of interest. Early studies into the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics have been so promising that the FDA has designated two such drugs, psilocybin and MDMA, as breakthrough therapies, a coveted label indicating their possible superiority over other treatments. These drugs are on track to being FDA approved as soon as next year. 
But at the same time, voters and state lawmakers have rapidly been expanding access to the drugs for recreational purposes. Daniel, can you just help us out? What are psychedelics and what conditions might they manage? Yeah, this, I think uh, like we were just talking about before, this gets to be one of the topics that comes with questions from our friends, family, <laughs> yes. and patients, you know, uh, almost every day. Uh, and a very different topic than the last one. Psychedelics, let's think of it broadly. I'm not going to necessarily group them all as a drug or, or medication. They're, it's a, chem- a chemical that can cause a change in the thought process, the mood, or even how you perceive the world around us. And when I mean perceive, that might mean the sensations like what we see, hear, or feel, or even how your brain, you yourself, process the things that you're seeing, hearing, or feeling, and the related emotions. And these are all ways that can be affected by these chemicals. Um, Sometimes they've been termed as mind-altering medications. I don't think that's a helpful term because it kind of can create some confusion and maybe suggest a permanent effect. And in general, these are shown to be temporary effects of the medications. As you mentioned, this can include psilocybin from a unique type of mushroom. It can include LSD and other substances, um, and and MDMA being the other one that you mentioned. And we'll use that acronym for the word because the word is very complicated sure. to say. And right now, there's not a useful short version. What are the side effects? I mean, that's what I hear about uh, from most. Is that I mean. These are trips, uh, for for lack of a better word. I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, so each one can cause a different effect on your brain in terms of the intended effect of a change in thought, mood, or perception. And so some people might think of that as the intended trip or the effect, and some people might think of it as a side effect. But separate from those, uh, let's talk about psilocybin because it was included in this study when they were treating PTSD. Um, The side effects were headaches in some people, nausea and dizziness. Um, And it's also important to note that these were done in a very controlled setting with providers, um, with medical doctors. So it's not like they, it was here, take the medicine and go off on your own and hang out at a coffee shop. Um, So this is a different context. And Beyond that, there can be a variety of other side effects that are unique to the other chemicals. So we're not saying that all psychedelics only have headaches, nausea, dizziness, and then the intended effect. What are your thoughts about all of this? Do you think uh, wait for other studies to come out uh, or is the time arrived that this is now going to be a new treatment? I'm not really sure we're at full show time per se. Uh, you know, I think there have been some promising studies, as you mentioned, this this publications, and it has been approved for use in Australia. And you know, I know our FDA is looking at it. There's some positive short-term impacts, and I think that's the big aspect. We're really only now understanding, like this study showing a positive short-term effect over a few weeks for people with depression who was not controlled with other treatments or people with PTSD. And so having another tool to help those people who just really aren't getting effects from any other treatment is great news if the approvals and and safety moves forward. But it doesn't mean that this is now like a panacea and possible option to treat every kind of thing the way it's being purported in a lot of the common discussions. Got it. Let's move to yet another topic. And Dr. Arden, I'm going to point this one at you. you. And this is about the rampant use of non-prescription weight loss meds. Nearly one in 10 adolescents around the globe have used non-prescription weight loss products like laxatives and weight loss pills already in their lifetime, according to new research published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Network Open. Experts say the use of such products at a young age can pose both immediate and long-term health risks. Diet pills, laxatives, diuretics were the most frequently used non-prescription products, the study found. Girls were more likely than boys to seek them out. Almost 1 in 10 girls had used a weight loss product not just during their lifetime, but also in the past year. Um, Dr. Arden, what are the risks of these non-prescription weight loss drugs that you can just go to any 
drugstore or grocery store in the United States and get? Yeah, I think sometimes um, we think because something's over the counter, it's somehow safer. But, you know, any medication, um, even vitamins and some supplements, everything potentially has a risk. And so with medications like our, our over-the-counter laxatives and diuretics and, and diet pills, um, as they're called, um, they, they do have significant health consequences if, um, if, if used inappropriately. Um, our chronic use of laxatives can um, uh, lead to a patient having to really depend on using something to have a bowel movement. Um, sometimes the more significant circumstances, someone can have a bowel obstruction, which is a surgical emergency. Um, uh, Over-the-counter diuretics can um, uh, uh, disrupt our electrolytes. So these are things like potassium and sodium potentially affect our kidney function. And um, electrolyte disorders can carry significant consequences, including problems with um, our heart rhythm. So they they are not benign medications. It's, it's very worrisome that um, these things can be so easily accessed by our, our adolescents. Do they even work to lose weight? They don't really work that well. So that's also, I think, kind of the the scary part of things is um, we have, you know, we have these young patients who are using something that's really not effective for what they're, um, I guess, personally intending to use them for. So I often advise against these medications. A last piece on this. What's your best advice to our younger listeners who want to lose weight fast? It's a really important question. And as a family medicine physician, um, these are conversations I also have, um, but also need to have very carefully. So I would ask that that younger listener to have a conversation with their pediatrician or family doctor about why they think they need to lose weight and why that's important to them. Um, there, there may be some important reasons to think about our health, and that's something that I could help walk a patient through safely with the support of their family, depending on their age. But on either end of the spectrum, sometimes those conversations actually are um, have significant um, uh, caveats to them, you know, in terms of uh, whether or not that patient really needs to lose weight. We might be dealing with someone who's struggling with an eating disorder, um, anorexia or bulimia, and so that's uh, much more significant. Um, you know, on the other side of things, we talk a lot about weight these days. I think our last uh, our conversation was around weight loss drugs, and so it is something that we, you know, is very much, much top of our mind, and we do want to think about the health of our patients who's sitting in front of me at age 15. I want to think about what that patient looks like at 35 or 40. And so I would want to better understand why that that youngster wants to think about taking a medication and really help walk them through. I think that that um, not only the physical kind of consequences are part of that journey, but also the mental health consequences of, of weight loss. I want to thank you three for this part of our conversation. But up next, our experts are going to hang around with us. They're going to answer your questions. And we'll be right back. Did I get a postcard? Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? Our producer, Stacey Bennett, joins us now with questions for our experts from our listeners. Hi, Stacey. How are you doing? Hey, Dr. Joe. How are you? I am good. What do you have for us? Well, Emily in Miami wonders, I feel overwhelmed and just trying to manage my own feelings when it comes to my friends and family's drama. My question is, how do you all, as healthcare workers, handle the emotional toll of caring for patients with chronic illnesses? Are there specific strategies or support systems in place to address the challenges faced by healthcare professionals that you can share with non healthcare people? Dr. Cowart, I know you are in the hospital, so you uh, were all stressed, but you, you get to see it very directly in that setting. How would you address Emily? Well, this is a, a great question and uh, I think good for all of us to kind of review how we manage and cope with things that are stressful. And maybe that's job stress, family stress, dealing with caring for patients with chronic illnesses. All of us have stressors uh, in our lives. So this was a good chance for me to review. So I think of it in things that I can control myself and then can I control the environment? So I can't pick my family. Um, maybe I can pick my job or I can choose things around my job to make it better, or less stressful. Um, maybe I can take a break 
if family or job or other things are causing me stress, but I can't necessarily always change my external environment, right? So I'll do what I can to manage my external environment. Otherwise, I need to work on how can I cope with these things. So I think, first off, I want to hearken back to a previous episode uh, of the show that I was on where we talked about vagal nerve stimulation. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Remember that? So I was actually refreshing myself on why certain things that are promoted as stress relievers may be effective. And so practices like meditation, deep breathing, yoga, exercise, uh, a lot of those practices are suspected to work via vagal nerve stimulation, this nerve coming down from the brain, um, coming down and innervating lots of things throughout the body and the gut. And if we can calm that nerve, provide a little stimulus through that nerve, it may have long lasting impacts on our mood, on our stress on our anxiety and depression. And so things that are commonly recommended uh, as stress relievers, they may actually have some benefit with this vagus nerve act activation. So even listening to music, uh, getting massage, getting some exercise, taking a walk outside, um, all of those things are so beneficial and may help us just reset for a moment. If I'm feeling stressed out, I may need to go just take a little walk, go get a tea, go get something to, um, to look at. I try to look at, am I eating well? Am I sleeping enough? Am I drinking too much caffeine, which many of us are prone to, and, and trying to reduce those things so that I can better manage my stress. Same thing with alcohol consumption. Am I leaning too much on drinking alcohol at night, which may actually worsen my ability to manage stress. So less alcohol is generally better for managing stress. Um, the last thing I would say is all of us are generally overstimulated and have difficulty managing these uh, high tech environments. We're on social media all the time. We're on our computers all the time. I'm sitting here talking to you on using two screens with That's nine right. tabs on a browser and an EMR <laughs> open and dinging and alarms and alerts going off all the time. And I was reading some work recently on human attention and how all of these things that we're doing are actually making our attention spans shorter and making it more difficult for us to concentrate on tasks. And I know I get more irritated, irritable and stressed out when I concentrate. So all of those tactics that I just talked about, um, in particular, taking a break between tasks, uh, refocusing our attention looking away from the computer, taking deep breaths, uh, stepping aside for a minute. All of those things can help us refocus our attention, get out of that moment of increased stress and anxiety. So I wish I could fix the fact that, that folks are having family drama or, or the fact that taking care of patients uh, is sometimes very hard on us. I think anything we can do to make our systems better make our systems work better for the humans in them. I think that is good. So like Dr. Arden and I are working in an environment where we get maybe a lot of messages uh, in the in-basket. How can we make those messages a little less stressful, uh, reduce our work burden a little bit more so I can connect with my patients instead of connecting with the computer? Um, so if we can work on our environment, that's great. If we can work on ourselves, that's great. And, and then connect with other people. Alex from Seattle is curious, with the rise of telehealth, how do you all maintain a personal connection with patients? Are there challenges in building trust through remote visits, and how do you overcome them? Dr. Arden, I'm going to point this one at you. Um, how do you maintain that personal human touch in telemedicine? It's a great question. It's something I think we, some of us had to learn to do during the pandemic before most of us practice, you know, virtual medicine, telemedicine. Um, and I think it, a lot of the techniques we use even in person when we see our patients. So it's, it's physically being engaged with the visit. So when I am sitting at my computer having a telemedicine visit with a patient, um, I'm looking directly at the screen at them. I'm, I'm in a quiet environment so that I can focus on the time with them. Um, I'm, I'm making sure that I feel mentally ready to have that conversation with them, just like I would before I'd walk into an office visit. Um, but I will say what's been really interesting, I know for 
not all patients, and the, the virtual visits are probably what they feel most comfortable or are most helpful with, but for a lot of patients, I actually get to see a different side of them than I would see them in the office. You know, I get to see their homes, I get to see them potentially feel a little bit more relaxed and more comfortable because they're not in an office, um, a doctor's office, maybe worried about getting their blood pressure taken or what we're going to talk about today. Um, I've met family members that I would not have otherwise met, spouses and grandchildren and children. Met a lot of pets during the pandemic, which I thought was so much fun to, <laughs> fun to be for my patients. And, you know, sometimes I'll get to see their environment and really understand what the context of their lives look like. Um, meaning that I, I remember talking to a patient about how gardening was really helping her from a mental health standpoint during the pandemic. So she watched me outside with her smartphone and she showed me the garden that she was working on, the vegetables that she was growing and how she was trying to eat better. So I think it's it's possible. And I think for some patients, actually, it can feel more comfortable actually having that connection via telehealth. I love it. Stacy. what else do we have? Madison in Phoenix asks, my mom recently had a stroke. It seems that brain conditions like stroke often come with significant lifestyle adjustments. How do you all work with patients to ensure they have the support they need for both medical and lifestyle changes? Dr. Correa, I, I, I know that um, as a neurologist, you're probably best able to answer this question. It's an interesting one. Yeah. And this is, you know, an active area of discussion that we want to learn and grow and learn from the community about how best to do it. But um, the American Academy of Neurology that uh, Dr. Servin and I are both a part of is working on an overall brain health initiative um, to help advocate for prevention of lots of conditions like stroke. The American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association have lots of great resources for ways to prevent recurrent strokes like these lifestyle modifications. And they'll have information about ways to modify your diet uh, for healthier diets like the MIND diet or the Mediterranean diet or diets that have been shown to help in secondary prevention of follow-up strokes and of other neurologic conditions and degeneration of the brain. And many people across the country and in different regions, even local hospitals, are looking at some of the social and structural challenges that affect people's ability to manage and do the things that are healthiest for them, the, the things that prevent you from making the healthy choices, the easy choices um, because of financial or other limitations. Um, and so if you're having challenges, I would really encourage seeing if you and your mother can have an opportunity to discuss with social work services and within your own institutions or your own doctors and hospitals that you go to, because they may be able to help you also navigate some of those other challenges that just prevent getting healthy food or access to your doctors and the other things that just make a challenge to even follow what are the recommendations out there for what's healthiest for our brain and for prevention of stroke. Makes sense. Stacy. what else do we have? Our next question comes from Thomas in Indianapolis. He wonders, in the era of information overload, how can I work collaboratively with my primary care team to sift through the latest medical headlines and make informed decisions about my health? Most of what I read is literally junk. I need help. Dr. Arden, uh, as a primary care physician, uh, misinformation is huge. Uh, what's your advice? Oh, Thomas, you're not alone. So I think this is even something we struggle with in healthcare because there is so much information out there. So I appreciate the difficulty. You know, it's really a double-edged sword, I think, to be living and in, in practicing medicine in a day and age where there's so much information at our fingertips and so much information that's rapidly changing. On one hand, it's really exciting for me to um, appreciate how much is changing quickly that can provide better care for my patients. Um, but on the other hand, it feels very overwhelming to keep up with what feels like ever-changing and growing amounts of information that, again, one could easily just Google on their internet um, and feel overwhelmed by. So my first piece of advice is to maybe really understand where you want to look first for reputable and trustworthy information when it comes to healthcare and, and science. And so I'm a big fan, of course, of large academic institutions like the Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic um, because you'll get a lot of that really evidence-based, peer-reviewed, constantly reviewed information and can feel 
that that's trustworthy information that you're reading. And then other places that patients can look to as well are um, our medical organizations. Um, for example, I take care of kids, so I'll refer many families to the American Academy of Pediatrics website for good information regarding different diagnoses or health questions and concerns. So, so know where to go to first, and then that way if you can come across some information, perhaps on a social media post or on a website or a family email chain, you can look at that and compare it to what's out there and make sure that that is accurate and, and, and confirmed by those websites. But the second part is, you know, ask us. That's that's part of my job as your primary care physician to be on top of the ever-changing landscape of healthcare and being on top of the updated guidelines. And, you know, what am I supposed to do with this vaccine this year, Dr. Arden? Or have you heard of this new medication? Or I'm concerned I heard about this side effect to the medication that I'm on. Let us help you answer those questions too, because you'll be um, you'll know that you're getting the right information as well. I want to thank the three of you all for being such a powerhouse team today, answering a lot of these great questions. Uh, thank you, Dr. Tina Arden. She's a family medicine uh, physician at Mayo Clinic here in Jacksonville, Florida. Thank you to Dr. Daniel Correa. He is a practicing neurologist at Montefiore Medical Center in Bronx, New York, and co-host of the Brain and Life podcast for the American Academy of Neurology. And Dr. Jennifer Coward. She is a practicing hospitalist here in Jacksonville, Florida. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Lufkin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is a special conversation with the president of the Duval County Medical Society and talking mental health with the Wounded Warriors Project. If you have any questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tag me on X at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop.